And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. I don't know about you, but when something comes up over and over, I figure it means I'm supposed to take a look at it, pay attention. It's kind of like the universe is tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, over here. I mean, it could be a person who comes to mind a lot or I bump into. It could be a thing I'm supposed to do or I keep hearing. Or in the case of today, it's a word that keeps coming up a lot. Unconditional. If you listened to last week's episode, which of course you have, you heard it then. And you're going to hear about it again today with Rachel Diamond. She's an architect, designer, and a creative coach. She's a maker of things, and she's worked on projects from buildings designed for government and healthcare to corporations, animal shelters, and private homes. She's one of those people who's tasked with looking at an empty space and then turning it into something that has a function and does it beautifully. In today's Unleashed Conversation, Rachel talks about unconditionality and how for her, it's linked to safety, to connection, and belonging. She talks about how important it is to be willing to give up everything you have in order to get what you want. She talks about vision, risk, and sacrifice. And she talks about Mandy, Abby, Chloe, Copper, and Maddie. The dogs in her life, the teachers of all these things, I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. What is your earliest memory, Rachel, of a pet in your life? Oh, my earliest memory of a pet in my life. Well, I didn't, um, my first pet of my own was at age of 10. But before that, I shared pets with all of my family members. So my earliest memory would be of my Uncle Dan's Cocker Spaniel, Mandy. <laughs> Mandy the Cocker Spaniel. What what color was Mandy? She was buff. Buff color. Oh. Now, did she, was she an English cocker or an American cocker? Did she have a long snoot or was she a little shorter of a snoot? Short, short little snoot. So an American cocker spaniel. Yeah. And she had long fluffy hair on her legs mm -hmm. and, her tires, and her little tiny dock tail. Right. <laughs> Were they just like... Little they get butt. excited and they just do <laughs> this wiggle. Yeah. Their whole body vibrates. Yeah. So what's the memory that you have of her? Because as you were talking about her, your your face lights up and your face softened and your voice softened. What is it about that memory? She was um, she was always at my, you might hear my dog in the background. You hear Maddie barking. Yeah. <laughs> Stop talking she, about other dogs. Talk about me. She, um, if that gets distracting, I can close that door. Um she was always at my grandmother's house. So I remember her being in the kitchen and I was little, so she was my height. And we were always at, you know, close to eye level with each other. I just remember her being around. 
being around on the floor under the tables where all the little kids were, where I was, and um, just snuggling on her, just feeling her presence. So when you think about that experience with that dog, what are the feelings that it evokes for you? Um, Love, connection, Um, yeah, it brings up emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unconditional love Mm -hmm. and acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where my love of dogs began Mm -hmm. with Mandy. What I'm also hearing is safety, and I'm hearing acceptance, like this sense of just kind of being however you want to be and everything's just kind of cool Mm -hmm. how it is. Yeah, acceptance and safety, yeah, of instant forever friend. So let's wind the clock forward to your 10 years old and you have your first pet. (laughs) Yes, this is a lovely story I get to share with you. Okay, so I have an older brother, Josh, and a younger brother or a younger sister, Sarah. And up until... I was 10 years old. We did not have a family pet of our own in our, you know, immediate family. And my brother and I always wanted a dog of our own. And we asked all the time, please, can we get a dog? Please, can we get a dog? And so this Christmas, when I was 10 years old, my brother and I came up with a plan. We asked for a dog. We put a dog on our, on our Christmas list. And then some other little things that we wanted um, and some shared gifts because, you know, just options for the parents. And Christmas morning came and we had everything that we asked for except for the dog. And we were very grateful and appreciative of everything we received. And we came up with this plan. We talked about it. And propose this to our parents, that if we were to return every single gift that we received for Christmas between he and I, because my little sister was three at the time, she wasn't part of this scheme. So if we were to return every single gift we received for Christmas, could we buy a dog? So... (laughs) My parents talked about it and they agreed that yes, we could get a dog, but, and because we were open to giving up everything for this dog, emotions here, because, because, (laughs) because we were open to giving up everything we wanted for this dog. We could get the dog and keep our gifts. 
So he was open to, he had some suggestions of, of uh, what kind of dog he would want. And I was open to options of what kind of dog I would want. It really didn't matter to me what kind of dog it was, just as long as it's a dog. And so we talked about it as a family and we decided to get a Cocker Spaniel, just like Mandy. <laughs> and we did. So we, we shopped around and we went to, um, we found a, a family who had Cocker Spaniel puppies for sale and we went and we picked her out and we visited her a couple times until she was old enough to bring home. And we picked her out and then we picked her up and brought her home. And that's Abby. And how long did you have Abby in your life? Abby was with us for almost 18 years. 18 years. So you were 28 years old, almost 28 years old. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. She was witness to everything, wasn't she? Oh, yes. She was my best, best friend. Mm. Yeah. What I'm besides just the pure emotion that you're that you're sharing with me about this, there are the lessons from Mandy: acceptance, safety, belonging, love, joy, and then Abby. Again, just reiteration and that perfect connection, that best friend, that trust. And that willingness to give up everything you have in order to get the thing you want. And where I go to with that is is what it means to you to be a leader in the world and how the lessons from these dogs play. Now, so and before we go into that, first I should let my the listeners know kind of who is this amazing and beautifully <laughs> emotional creature with whom I have the pleasure of chatting today. So Rachel Diamond, for the uninitiated, is an architect, a creator, a designer, a woman who takes empty spaces that are empty spaces and makes the empty spaces become places where things happen, um, brings people's dreams and visions to life uh, in doing so with intention uh, in an industry and in a space that is largely male-driven, very heavily male-driven. You are a coach. You are a leader. You are someone who empowers women. You're vision being empowering the women of your field to step into their own leadership to create, build, and do. Absolutely. And uh, so that's the what you do thing, just so for those of you who don't. And, um, you know, at the end of this, there's links, there's links in the, in the show notes, folks, where you can get to Rachel and find out more about her and connect with her and all that groovy stuff. And I strongly encourage you to do so. So pivoting on that and looking at 
these lessons, these amazing lessons that have literally been saturated into the marrow of your bones since you were itty-bitty up to today. Mm -hmm. You are now less itty-bitty. You're a grown woman with a grown (laughs) child and, like, you've made and raised a human and all of these things. Um, Dogs are still ever-present in your life. And these lessons... Where do they where do they land in your life today? Absolutely. Looking looking back, like you said, looking back on this <clears throat> our proposition, <laughs> my brother and I, what we came up with for our how to create this dog, how to manifest this dog into our life. Looking back at that, it's connected with leadership, having a vision having a vision for what we want, what we want to create in our life and being willing to do whatever it takes to give up what we have for what we want, being willing to ask, to put ourselves out there, to risk being rejected, to risk the sacrifice um, that comes with that, being told no, finding a new opportunity and a, a new way because 100% is possible. We know this. When we're connected and committed to our vision, what we want to create, we get to create it. Um, And just standing for what we want, being willing to use our voice and ask and collaborate with others, not stand on our own, but join forces with others because there's power in numbers. And we are stronger and better and can create magnificent results when we're willing to not lone wolf, to not take it all on our shoulders, on our own, and reach out. And that's what we created. We manifested this dog in our life. Abby, who was with us for 18 years, saw the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, Oh, my goodness. She knew knew all of my secrets. (laughs) And loved you anyway. Oh, yes, she did. Yes, she did. She was my best little buddy, my shadow, my confidant, my companion, my counselor, (laughs) my therapist. She was all of it and my best friend. And through all the ups and downs of the teenage years and becoming an adult and moving out into my own world, she was with me. And even when um, my parents, they, my parents moved away and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I stayed in the house where for the most part I grew up in and it was just me and the dogs and Abby became a mom and we adopted one of her babies, Belle. And then my brother what is a hunter and he has hunting beagles, but these beagles, they are spoiled. They live in luxury. They are not the typical hunting dogs that are sad and in terrible conditions and used and abused. He treats them like family. They are so, so spoiled and they live a wonderful life because he lets them be and do what makes them happy. 
he lets them go run and be in their element and be in their nature and be exactly who a beagle is meant to be. And so he also had walker hounds, English walker hounds or foxhounds. And one of the moms had a litter of puppies um, and she had acid milk. And so all of the puppies perished except for one. He was the runt of the litter and to his advantage, he wasn't able to get to mom to feed like the other stronger puppies could. And so he survived, he was so small, his whole body fit in the palm of my hand. His head was just bigger than a quarter. His eyes weren't even open. And he brought this puppy home and said, here he is, we get to take care of him. I can't leave him out. I can't leave him outside. So we took on this dog and we named him Samson, strong, mighty, powerful Samson, called him Sammy. Such a joy, so incredibly smart. Um, he was such a little jokester too, and very creative and innovative. He had these very long arms, uh, arms, <laughs> legs, <laughs> the two front ones, the arms. Um, well, technically, technically, the, just, you know, uh, kind of physiologically, in a dog's front legs, the bends in their front legs are called elbows, and the okay. bends in their hind legs are called knees. So, so technically, technically, they are his arms. arms. Technically, they're his arms, <laughs> even though they're all legs, they're arms. So, yes. Yeah. So he, he would get like jump up to the kitchen counter with his long arms and paw for what he wanted and knock it onto the floor and eat it. <laughs> so silly and um, so sweet and nurturing, too, because my mother for a long time, she did in-home in daycare. So there were always children of all ages, from newborn all the way up to elementary school. And when they would drop a toy, he would pick it up and give it to them. So smart. So anyhow, Abby then had Belle, and then we adopted Sammy. So we had these three dogs. And when my parents moved away and my little sister went with them, Abby, Belle, and Sam stayed with me. So they were my pack. We were a pack. Tight. They were my family. What and if I told you the word pack is incorrect? Can I, I blow can I can I blow your brain brain open <laughs> for a minute? So the word yes. pack, as defined by the dictionary, is a collection of identical objects. Those think pack of gum, pack of matches, pack of cigarettes. I buy a pack of paper. All the paper is all the same size. So it's it means uniformity and identical. And so a collection of dogs, even those that are born to the same parents, are not all the same. So like you and your brother and your sister not the same, genetically connected, sure, similar um, mannerisms, look-alike, genetic material connected, and unique individuals. So there's a researcher by the name of Gordon Haber who studied the wolves of Denali for about 35, 40 years and wrote a book called Among Wolves. And it's, most of it is his field notes and observations of the wolves over that period of time from like the mid-late 60s through his death in the early kind of to mid-noughts 
Um, he died in a plane crash, unfortunately, while he was out observing wolves. So at least he died doing what he loved. Um, he proposed that we remove the word as a descriptor for a collection of wolves uh, because it was etymologically incorrect, because it's not true, they're not identical, um, and that it's sociologically also not really true. When you think of the word pack as to describe, like, so the phrase, a wolf pack of men, they're not typically out doing philanthropic work, right? They're usually out making mischief or mayhem, right? They're out doing something negative. So the word pack and to describe dogs as a pack is is actually, um, it was a creation of man who demonized the wolf because typically ranchers, farmers demonized the wolf because the wolf ate their livestock and destroyed their fencing and dug up their gardens and terrorized their family. So wolves, and you know, you think of the werewolf, you think of Little Red Riding Hood and the big bad wolf. You think of the wolf and the three little pigs. You think of all of the myth and fairy tale images of wolves and their dangerous, sinister, mean, um, which is categorically untrue. It's not it's not wolves. It's actually, it is, it is patently, absolutely, 150% inaccurate and false to describe wolves in that way. Frankly, they could care about humans. Um, most canids um, in the wild will avoid humans. They're actually not particularly interested in us. The only danger is if we um, threaten them, you know, if there's a threat to family or if they're sick, if they're not well. So as with any, animal. as with any animal, including humans, mm -hmm. by the way, including, including humans, humans, by yes. the way. And so when you describe them as feeling like your family, it's because they didn't feel like your family. It's because they were your family they that they don't know that we are human and they are dogs. They just know we are a different animal, an animal with which they have chosen to live in symbiosis. So. That I would just put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, if you <laughs> do such a thing, if one were if one were to do such a thing, then one could do. But anyway, so they were your family. They absolutely were my family. Yes. They so what were. does family mean to you? Oh gosh, family to me is a group of beings, not just humans. Well done. Not animals. Well done a group of beings that unconditionally love and support and look out for, protect, care for, nurture, celebrate, cheer each other on. What about accountability? And ideally, yes. Ideally, yes. However, <laughs> however. Dangling butt. Okay, bring it. Right. However, um, when family members aren't tight or they're coming from a place of, you know, in leadership terms, from a place of fear or scarcity or um, a feeling of unworthiness, they may not feel confident to hold each other accountable so, for fear of risking rejection. So does that come from within or without? Within or so, for example, if I don't feel, in order to feel comfortable with others, 
get to be comfortable with yourself first. Yes. So ideally, family members would absolutely 100% call each other forward Mm -hmm. and hold them in their greatness. So... As for my little family unit, well, I mean, it was just interesting when it was the dogs and I absolutely, absolutely. They held me in my highest unconditionally accepted me for whoever I was in the moment. And I'd be remiss to not allow us to uh, touch for a moment here on actually, no, we're going to come back to Copper and Maddie in a minute. Um, We'll come back to them. Because what I, what I want to make sure that we look into also is, um, so how does all this translate in the human world for you? When you think about the work that you do, um, you know, you work with men and women, but specifically your vision of working with women in the design and architectural and creation field. Um, and you think about these lessons that you have learned that have been saturated into you from your interaction with the dogs in your life, how do those things come together? Where does it land for you? And what does that look like? The first thing that comes to mind is an incredibly valuable skill that I learned from being in a family with dogs. So they are without words. We get to communicate with a language that's nonverbal. We get to communicate with our energy, with our body language, with uh, facial expression, um, the tone of our voice, the tone that the sound of our voice, how it comes through to them. Because we can say something so unexcited, unexciting with an exciting tone, and they're ready to party. They're like, yes, let's go. You know, like, we get to take out the garbage. And they're like, yes, let's do it. You know, so learning how to communicate with energy, with body language, to really connect and feel what what another being wants and needs, and how to support them without speaking, that is a skill that I learned. And I'm also intuitive. I'm very intuitive and empathic. So with my clients, when I moved into this field, my manifesto, if you will, was to create beautiful spaces and places and environments in the world that fostered love and acceptance and really connected to the beings that were using the space, whether it's a transient public area, whether it's a office, a hospital, a learning space, or a residence to really embody the energy of the people who would be in the space or animals, because I've created spaces for animals as well, but to really connect with what would support them in that experience while they're in the space and create a moment, a feeling, a memory that they could take with them. So it's not just the experience in that moment, it's an experience, a beautiful experience that carries forward with them. So that was my manifesto. So when you think about that, So my dad was an architect, so you're speaking language that I completely get. 
um, form follows function and that a space, the everything from the color to the texture to the materials you use, whether it be wood or stone, what kind of stone, is it brick, is it concrete, you know, is it metal, is it fabric? Mm -hmm. um, each of these carry a different physical energy, a different kind of tonality. They change the sound of the space. They change the warmth or not. Is a space a cool space, a cold space, a hot space, a warm space? So I would love for you to dive into that a little bit and the process that you go through when you're with a client to help them navigate to finding what that might look like for them. Okay, so the beginning of the process is to have a meeting with the client, a, a sit down at a table. And I like to sit, there's a psychology to a meeting in your, your placement at the table. So rather than sitting across from the client, which creates a, a division of me versus you, you versus me, a separation, I like to sit next to my client, right beside them. So we can connect, I can feel their energy, I can get a sense for the essence of their being. And we just talk, we have a conversation about what they want to create, the idea that they have, the function of the space, who will be using it, how often, if there's um, a turnover or if it's a space where the same person will be using that spot, that space over and over. So just a feel for how the space will be used, the culture of the users, and their like the corporate culture, um, the motto or the the commitment, you know what what the space is basically just what the space will be used for, who will be in it, how it will be used, and so we walk through all the requirements, and then I start to look at if it's an existing space that we get to build out, or if it's a blank piece of land that we get to build on, I start to look at, with my planning team, I look at where it's located geographically. I look at the natural landscape, the positioning of the sun, where it rises and where it sets, and how we can incorporate nature to bring the nature into the space for that biofeedback and that connection to life so that someone isn't in four walls and disconnected from the world outside, but that the world outside is also connected to the inside. So bringing the outside in and allowing them a connection from the inside out. And that's really important as a human as well to have an outward connection with your environment. Um, and so from there, we start to concept and create a space. And through the whole process, I'm very connected to who they are and what will support them down to color selection, material selection, how the space gets to feel. I'm looking at spatial perception also. Does it get to feel 
cozy and small or is it large and expansive? What is the experience that gets to be created? And this is very important specifically in museum work as well. Um, really paying attention to all the details, to all, I say all six senses, not just the five, but all six, because we all have an innate knowing that we can't explain how or why, but we just are and we just know. And so I'm tapping into that as well and bringing that forward and incorporating that into the space. So you speak and what you say completely lands with me, right? So I'm, I, I am of the metaphysical, believe in it, kind of connect to quantum physics and all of that. Like I go to the woo-woo pretty easily, right? <laughs> I, go, I go, go to the woo-woo. Now, I would imagine, especially when you're working with a corporate client, that there may be occasions where you're sitting with someone and, you know, first of all, you go to sit next to them and they're like, what the hell is she doing? Sitting there like, okay, okay. And they kind of, that probably gives them, there probably is a minute of like, okay, so you're next to me, cool. And then you're asking them these questions and posing these questions. Have you, tell me about an experience that, and you don't have to be necessarily specific unless there's one specific experience that pops to mind where you're engaging in this and the person's like, I just don't understand what you're asking me. I'm trying to build an office where people come to work. Why does the position of the sun matter? I don't get it. Like, have you ever faced something like that that you then got to navigate and walk through? Yes. And here's Here's the magical component of what we do as architects and designers and, and builders in this field. So many of those considerations and those details aren't even brought to light. They are incorporated behind the scenes as um, part of the experience because there's not every client wants to know that, wants to understand it. So those are things that we create as part of our knowledge and our experience and our expertise. What's important to them, it varies per client, but what's important to them typically is how many people can I get into this space? What is the budget? Can you get it done on time or faster? <laughs> Under budget, yes. exactly what I want. And just, I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. Right. Yeah. And so we keep refining the design until we get to that place where they say, yes, I like this. And they may not even understand why they like mm -hmm. it. They just know that it's right. Yeah. Because behind the scenes, we have considered the psychological, the emotional, mm -hmm. the, ex the spiritual mm -hmm experience mm -hmm. that's being created and a good designer incorporates It's like good that. design is like good security. It's just there. Mm -hmm. You don't even know it's there. And when you need it, you're really glad that it is. <laughs> I had a friend, I have a friend, he's still living it on the planet. And then I like to think that we're still friends, even though we haven't spoken in a while. Uh, who just, his, his, his title for himself, he was Eric Corey Freed, the organic architect. 
And he was doing lead certification, like, before lead certification was even a thing. So he was always a green guy. Uh, And I spoke to him for a show I did years ago. And we spoke about um, what it means to incorporate something for people that they don't know that they want it or need it, but when they get it, all of a sudden it's magic. And the story he related was building a home for a couple that had been married a very, very long time. And they were uh, designing kind of the main sitting room area of the house, so the space in the house where the family was going to spend the majority of its time. So it was the, I mean, all of the rooms got attention, but this was the room that was going to be functionally lived in the most. And so um, it's where they was, were really placing the most attention. And so he, he said to each of them separately, which I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. if there were a fire and you were running out of the house and you could only grab one thing, all of the humans and all of the animals, like all of the living creatures are out of the house. So assume that all life is already saved. You can grab one thing. What would you grab? And the, both of the couple said exactly the same thing. It was a particular uh, vase or curio item, a, a piece of art that they had purchased together um, that had cost for them at the time when they were newlyweds, it had co- it was an enormous amount of money for them, but they both loved it and they bought it for each other as an anniversary, as like their first anniversary gift to each other. And so now they're like 25, 30 years married, but it was the item they both pointed to. And so he designed in the living room, he, you know, looked at the latitude, longitude of the house and where it was and all of the trees they were planting and the heights of the trees and what the light in the windows not just was going to be when they built the house, but what was it going to be five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road as the foliage grew and other houses might be built. He took all this into consideration and he created a space, a kind of a built-in space in the wall with for this particular item that based on the sun and the angle of the sun that every year on their anniversary, when the light came through that window, it would point direct, it would, that, that part of the space, it would be illuminated. He didn't tell them. He didn't tell them. Yes. He didn't tell them. Yes. It just was a thing that was done. He told them that the space that was created was for that, but he didn't tell them why. And it was just about the magic and the discovery of it. And, and it's actually a very ancient, you know, the ancient, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Egyptians, you know, you go back into ancient design. I spent some time in Peru and there are, um, there are temples constructed in Peru where at us on the day of the solstice, On the day of the solstice at sunrise, the sun comes up between the mountains and literally streams across the valley and lands in a very particular place on the temple. I mean, it's like I, the first time he told me the story, I said, so like in Indiana Jones, when he goes to the place at the thing with the thing, so like, that's a, (laughs) that's a real thing. He said, yeah. Yes. Yes. Following the light. Yeah. The study of the sun and celebrating, celebrating the sun. Same as Chichen Itza in Mexico. Yeah. It's beautiful. And those are the considerations that we, I say behind the magical curtain, 
those are the considerations that we have. And so it's celebrating what's important for each client, whether it's commercial, government, residential, healthcare. I love healthcare design as well because it's, um, it's, it's beautiful. It's unique. Every design uh, market is different. Um, they all have their own beautiful challenges and uh, rewards to them. Uh, but yes, designing for the elements, designing to celebrate, really, really understanding what's important to the client and incorporating it. And so many times clients will say, gosh, I didn't even know I needed this. How did you know? How did you know? I'm like, that's why you hired me. <laughs> That's why you hired Now, aren't you glad you actually or, hired a professional? Right. Or um, I've had clients, it's like intuitive design is what I call it, where I connect to the energy of the client and I can feel colors. I can feel colors that resonate with them. I can feel materials and textures that resonate with them. And um, there's part of the process where we, we have a meeting and we have all the material samples laid out on the table and we walk them through and create this visual experience in their mind with our drawings and our renderings and the materials we walk them through. And so many times a client has said to me, this is my favorite color. How did you know? Mm. How does that feel for you when, when you land like that? Amazing. Amazing. And it's, it's the gift of intuition. It's the gift of listening and being present and listening to what's underneath their words and the feeling and the emotion behind it. Mm-hmm. And knowing what questions to ask too, like seeing, seeing where they want to go and asking them questions to get them there. Mm. Meet, meeting, bring, meeting, bring meeting them, them where they are rather than like picking them up and throwing them across. The, like, Here you go. Boom. <laughs> just shut up and listen. Trust me. It's good for you. <laughs> you get what you get. Yeah, just shut up. <laughs> you, you hired me. Shut up and let me do my job. Shut up and let me do my job. So uh, <laughs> Copper and Maddie. Yes. Copper and Maddie are my two fur babies. They're both rescues and they're both in their senior years at this point in time. Copper is around 10 and Maddie is probably 13. So they're both seniors. And there was one, um, I had one dog before them, Chloe. Chloe was, (laughs) um, I adopted Chloe, my ex-husband and I, we adopted Chloe because I, this is kind of, this is on topic, off topic, potentially TMI, but at, when we were newly, newly married, we were in the family planning stages and I was, I was pretty sure I was pregnant. I was told that I was not, and I enrolled him in adopting a puppy. So we drove five hours away to rescue this beautiful little 
Black Lab Springer Spaniel mix that we named Chloe. And that was on a Saturday. On Monday, my doctor called me and he said, Rachel, I have some news for you. Are you sitting down? And this is after going to him and the week before looking for answers because I, I said to him that I'm either pregnant or I'm, I have a serious illness that we get to take care of. So he called and he said, I have some news for you. Your results are back. We we're pretty sure we know what's going on. I'd like for you to take a seat if you're standing. It's like, oh no, what's happening? That was scary, right? Like your doctor, not the nurse, not the exe- the secretarial staff. My doctor called and he said, Rachel, you're pregnant. You're 12 weeks pregnant. And I was like, oh my gosh, elation, mortification, all at the same time. And I said, doctor, I just adopted a 10 week old puppy. And he said, beautiful. Your family is growing exponentially. (laughs) So um, Chloe and my daughter, Noella, got to grow up together. And um, she was with us for almost eight years. And she had a very aggressive cancer. And... um, Yeah. So we lost her in 2013 or we released Mm -hmm. her. We didn't lose her. She's still with us. We released her from her physical being Mm -hmm. here with us in 2013. And at that point I said, I just don't know. I can't do it anymore. When are we getting a puppy? I, (laughs) I don't think I can have another dog. I can't go through this. It's so painful because at some point, Abby, Sam, and Belle, you know, they moved on. They moved on as well. Um, so one month later, Chloe sent us Maddie. Undeniably, I knew without a doubt that Chloe had sent us Maddie. So Maddie came to live with us, and I could tell that she was feeling a little bit lonely And so I called a local rescue and invited them to bring us dogs for Maddie to interview for her, for her companion, for her canine companion. And after about five or six animals came through, she selected Copper, a little beagle who was also very sick, which is in hindsight, probably the exact reason why she selected Mm -hmm. him because she knew that he wasn't well. And um, so, yes, that's how Copper came into our life. (laughs) So, and they're best little buddies. They're my family. It's my daughter and Maddie and Copper and I were our little family. And they've also been through, they have been through a lot of ups and downs Mm -hmm. and rough times, good times, difficult, challenging times. Mm -hmm. Um, and here they are. They're my best little friends. This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. War. Just the word makes me nauseous. The other day, I pulled out my big portfolio. It's this massive black case that is big enough to hold broadsheet pages. That's 
what they call those big pieces of paper that they print newspaper on, in case you weren't aware. I started my career in print journalism, so I have kept over the years articles I've written, especially the ones that were printed on the front page of the paper. And then over the years when there was big news in the world, I would also save those pages. I have this one copy of the San Francisco Chronicle. One day it says Gorbachev out across the top, and then the next day, Gorbachev back. (laughs) That one made me laugh. But then I pulled out the next one. War. Splattered across the front page in letters four inches tall, which on the front page of a newspaper is pretty big. Look, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a government wonk. I'm not a foreign affairs expert. I'm someone who transforms communications. And so I spend a lot of time looking at just how shattered our world is on that front. If we can't stand civilly in line at a Starbucks, or we can't interact with the host at a restaurant without throwing a punch, how on earth do we expect the world to be filled with anything other than friction and war? Maybe it's the ego-saturated fisticuffs of our leaders that opens the floodgates. I mean, it is said that a fish stinks from the head. Maybe it's their fault. I'm gonna call bullshit on that. Yes, leaders are culpable. And so are we. No matter what level you may be, government leader, philanthropist, corporate executive, entrepreneur, or just some regular person trying to get by, Every one of us is responsible. Every last one. The question is, what kind of world do you want to live in and how are you going to behave in it? What are you going to stand for? Having a vision and being willing to give up everything you have in order to see it come to life. That takes moxie. It's also one of the core principles for successful leadership. Being able to imagine the future and see it today comes in handy for architects, of course. I mean, we just heard that from Rachel. I mean, the job literally requires making a thing where nothing exists. The practice, though, is a valuable one for all of us. Take a risk. Sacrifice. Get presented with a hard no, and then course correct and find a new path because you're that committed to the vision. What would your life be like if you could live that way? How would it be different? We're thinking about 